Hello, anybody there? Hey. Hey, Rosemary? Yeah, can you hear me all right? Yes, I can. Good morning. Perfect. Or good morning. Good afternoon, I should say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for taking the time to do this. I'm really excited to get to chat with you and uh, see how things are going on your side of the world. Yeah. So let's start. You're currently in Morocco, right? Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. So can we begin there? How do you, how do you go to Morocco or how do you end up in, in, in a place like Morocco, which I'm sure is beautiful. And, and there's a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff happening there. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, originally, um, we came here on our honeymoon, had an amazing experience. And uh, we had some friends uh, who are Moroccan in Canada. Canada has uh, a fairly large expat population of Moroccans, so it really started there. And uh, my husband got a consultant job with the WHO, so we had to be close to uh, Switzerland for mm -hmm. that. And, uh, well, my work, I, it doesn't really matter where in the world I am, but it helps be close to the UK. And so it's been really beneficial to be on the same time zone as a lot of my British friends. <laughs> no, that's wonderful to hear. So uh, tell me about how writing begins for you. Can we start there? Yeah, really. It started with, um, I was diagnosed as uh, neurodivergent really young. And uh, it came from a place of struggle because uh, I learned to read and write at a little bit of a slower pace than my peers. And so once I learned how to figure it all out, uh, it really, it became largely an obsession. And I started writing stories and journals. I was part of uh, different theater groups and things like that, different writing groups starting in my youth. Mm. And uh, so I got into it really because it was a form of empowerment for me. I really, I didn't feel like I had much of a voice. Mm. And by writing stories, I was given a voice because that was where um, a lot of my power shined through, a lot of my, a lot of what affected people like me shine through. And that's mm. really what interests me about it. So do you recall a moment when you were younger, when you had that, that realization or that epiphany where you said, wow, this particular story, or th this is a breakthrough. Do you recall having the, uh, a kind of experience like that? It was really when I was in high school, when I started to be part of um, a lot of youth theater uh, projects, and I started to write out a lot of poetry and stuff. Um, I grew up in a really creative family, so it was mm. always part of my life. But it really wasn't until then where it started to seem really exciting and interesting. And I started to really stubbornly want to pursue it. <laughs> yeah. And it's kind of funny how that happens with, with theater. I think it just allows you to get out of your shell a little bit. It just provides you with more tools to do that. I, I clearly recall having that moment in my life, in particular with theater. And then it's like the floodgates open, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I miss doing theater, but I now I'm more doing nonfiction and sto uh, stories, and I feel like I still use a lot of those tools in a way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And plus, theater's kind of a pain in the neck. 
this is coming from a playwright, <laughs> somebody who, yeah. you know, is still at it in some ways. But yeah, it, it can be a bit more freeing, I suppose, to to see the full picture on on the page. So once you got out of high school, what was your path there after that? Um, I went to a liberal arts college in Toronto called uh, Glendon College, Stork University, and I started to be involved. I, I did like a standard English and theater studies degree, and I started to be involved much more so in the theater there. Mm. Uh, I had most of my peer group was people who were coming out as gay for the first time, people who were realizing that they had mental health issues. And I think that really inspired uh, a lot of my work and interest in where I wanted to go as a storyteller as well. Because mm -hmm. um, I was interested in narrative from a point of view of uh, finding your place in the world, finding your place in the community and the challenges of that. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. It's, it's such a, a noble thing to do, but clearly it, it is your worldview and what you believe in. Uh, it must've been such a, a beautiful time getting to see others who are still kind of stumbling to find that place in, and that's one of my favorite things about theater is that you always feel like you were, you were, uh, getting a little bit closer to that. But may I ask what you were reading at the time or what kind of entertainment or, or art you were experiencing at the time that really had an impact on you? Yeah, I was uh, studying a lot of Brecht. I, I got into really into the work of Judith Thompson. I'm an actor's kid uh, from Toronto. <laughs> so I really grew up with a lot of really exciting Canadian theater emerging at the time. And uh, that continued on the path of that theme. And that, to me, was uh, a lot of characters I was interested in exploring more myself. Mm, I see. I see. But your, your parents really led that, that actor's life or performer's life then? Both of your parents were actors? Uh, my dad was. Oh, okay. uh, my mom, it kind of gravitated from the grant writing world. They used to sometimes do plays together and stuff like that, but... Um, yeah, she did grant writing. She, uh, worked in the not-for-profit arts world. I see. So she was more the business side. Oh, so that was a good partnership. I think usually, <laughs> isn't that, uh, kind yeah. of a, an issue at least, uh, for, for some folks is like, you're either this kind of frame of mind or this other kind of frame of mind, more business oriented and, and performance oriented. So it seems like they, they fulfilled that part of each other in some ways. So, yeah. What were some some takeaways from that education that you hadn't had in an in an arts family? Because college is a very revelatory time, and clearly there's some blind spots that we're all kind of trying to take in and, and learn from. What were some revelations to you about who you were as a person or as an artist that came through while you were in college? I know it's a lot to summarize, well, but <laughs> yeah, you know, I think before that, I was I was trying too much to write narratives that were. Uh, reflecting other people and not me. And it helped me find more so a voice that was real to my way of thinking and communicating with the world. Yeah, yeah. That's a very courageous thing to do, I think, uh, as you're discovering your perspective and your voice. It's almost like you have to go through a moment of 
whose voice am I really talking in? And I, I think, you know, it takes a lot longer for some of us than others. I think, you know, I was years out of college before I realized, you know what, this isn't me. Who am I? Uh, and so yeah. it's great that you found that at that time. Yeah. You know, it was a really safe community, safe space. It was really like lots of people who were new to the country or like I said, coming out as gay or figuring figuring out their life so you were really encouraged to just like if you wanted to do some weird out there study on something really experimental you could go for it if you wanted to do a weird musical you could go for it yeah. so yeah i mean that was a really real privilege to experience that yeah so what did you write at that time can you give me an example of something that you wrote at that time um i was getting really into blogging but I was also writing about there was a lot I found really scary about being a young woman at the time and I wrote a lot about things like uh sort of the scary intimidation of um meeting uh people in bars when it comes Mm. to like dating and stuff like that I wrote a piece on uh it was the first time my grandparents started to have Alzheimer's diagnoses Mm. and get older and stuff like that so a lot of my work started to reflect how a lot of the people who had influenced me as a person uh them aging and seeing much more vulnerability around me right right and so it seems like there were a lot of things happening in life as well as as your own personal uh you know situation there can you tell me a bit about how how you reconciled or were able to reconcile, uh, you know, being a neurodivergent person in that world, or was it something that was at the forefront of how you lived your life at the time? Well, I was diagnosed when I was only four, but the issue was I was diagnosed with a form of neurodivergence that everyone always refers to as like the awkward younger sibling in Mm. a sense that it's the one that doesn't have wonderful awareness. So I feel I felt like I had to figure out a lot on my own. It wasn't until like my late twenties that I met anyone exactly like me. Mm-hmm. So a big part of my journey as an artist and as an individual was figuring out um, my own interaction in, with the world, and that's what storytelling was the tool for me for. Yeah. And for those of of uh, the listeners who may not be aware of what what the condition is, would would you mind giving us uh, uh, an overview or just a, a little information on on what it is, and that way we can yeah. share? So I have dyspraxia and sensory processing issues. Dyspraxia is a coordination issue, um, also known uh, more popularly in Canada and America as developmental coordination disorder. And, uh, yeah, so it's a signal in your brain. All of us have a signal that responds to um, motor tasks like throwing a ball or having to do something complex in the kitchen or even just figuring out, like, oh, I'm in a crowd. Uh, If I go left, that is the most logical direction to go to figure out how to get to the exit sign. And uh, so those are the an example of what coordination is. Mm-hmm. And it's a delay in learning new movements and new tasks around that. And the sensory processing part is more about um, sensitivity around uh, sensory overload or not having enough 
sensory stimulation mm-hmm. and how that can affect your focus, your productivity, and also your basic functioning in everyday life. Mm-hmm. So as you were, thank you for sharing that, first of all, but uh, as you were getting into the, I guess what we would call the adult world, the real world, you know, as many folks call mm-hmm. it, did you feel that you had acquired a toolkit of, of problem-solving skills to, to try to, to manage living in, in a world that, that isn't as accommodating to, to some of these conditions? Sort of. I mean, I still was working on developing the language, and what I wasn't prepared for is the fact that, honestly, uh, the world can be quite indifferent. Uh, I mean, like, in my work experiences prior to that, uh, at least I could find ways to appear as a neurotypical person, but in these, I was much more having to face head-on issues of disclosing versus not disclosing and how people were often not understanding enough. Mm. And that really made the whole concept of freelance really attractive, and that was really the beginnings of me exploring that as an option. Mm. During your time uh, getting ready to to go into your freelancing, um, did you ever? I, and I'm I'm trying to to find a way to delicately share this with people in terms of of allies, because clearly being a decent human being is not that difficult. But if there are some tools that can be had of somebody who would be an ally to uh, an individual who is neurodivergent or has conditions like like uh, the one similar to yours what are some things to look out for or, or ways to advocate for for a person like that yeah um things like having a quiet space available and that's a big part of things or um even some people prefer having questions sent ahead of time if it's something like a job interview mm-hmm. uh and Often, historically, neurodivergent people have made great creatives because um, you are, get really used to being taking on a role. So in creative roles, really, it's a matter of allowing that time and that space for preparation and also being really clear in your communication in terms of time and space, space expectations of, I need this by this day, I need this by this time. Mm-hmm. And have multiple ways of communicating available rather than just like always verbal. So thank you for sharing that. That's that's incredibly insightful. And it strikes me that the digital age might be really well suited to to you. Would you say that? That's Oh yeah, no. I mean it's been enormously empowering. I mean, some of my most important professional accomplishments have happened through the fact that I am just really good at understanding how a lot of the internet works, how social media works, stuff like that. (laughs) (laughs) So um, if I may ask, uh, as you're going into freelancing, how do you get started with that? And and what kind of things did you do to manage uh, making inroads in that that arena? Uh, I started off uh, by exploring gigs in... um, Sort of, sort of the areas um, I already had professional connections to. I started off with uh, 
not very exciting stuff like doing uh, transcriptions and uh, things like that. And more so, uh, I start I set up a website. I already had an existing blog, and uh, that helped me figure out uh, sort of where my services were needed. Um, and slowly through doing more and more work and uh, pitching different companies, being active online, I started to get more writing gigs, more write editing gigs, things like that. I see. So are you marketing adjacent or are you primarily in content creation for some of these, some of these folks? And uh, I started off much more uh, social media marketing and digital marketing focused. And then through there, why I changed specialties was I found that actually um, my knowledge of accessibility-based stuff and my ability to explore my my own voice uh, was my most demanding skill set and mm-hmm. that very much evolved into more of the work I'm doing now. Yeah. And it's great to hear that some companies, at least there is a more interest in trying to make things more accessible. Uh, is that something that you've seen change over the last 10 years, maybe? Oh, yeah. No. And I mean, even more so like with the pandemic, um, I think the fact that people are talking more about mental health based stuff and the fact that it's become more common for somebody to be disabled even in the short term, mm-hmm. it, it's leading to a real change in public mindset where there's yeah. way more people with a sense of curiosity um, and desire to explore if these things affect them or people they love. Right. So uh, speaking of the pandemic, I'm curious how that changed life for you. How, uh, how impactful was that or not so impactful for you? Oh, it's huge. I mean, uh, in terms of the good parts, uh, shortly before it, I I got married, and then <laughs> I went on my honeymoon, and then the pandemic basically uh, hit uh, soon after I was coming home. And then at first, it was really much much harder to find certain jobs and etc. But like things slowed down much more so for me. But my husband and I really like we really like made huge changes in our life that uh, I think affected us for the better. And it was a big part of why we made the move to where we are today. Yeah. May I ask what some of those things uh, were in terms of like leaving, leaving Canada? Uh, What is it that, that you found palatable of, of, I mean, obviously like it seemed like work stuff really seemed to, to gel with uh, moving to Morocco, but in terms of cultural things, um, were there some things that just made sense to you uh, in terms of leaving Canada? Oh, yeah, no. I mean, uh, I am from a uh, part of Canada that's uh, a, bit like, a bit like being in New York or L.A., where, like, it's getting more and more expensive and higher stress. And uh, really, we, we realized that we wanted a more relaxed way of life for a while and mm-hmm. we had an opportunity that allowed us to do that and uh, we already were at a point in our careers where we felt like we were connected enough that um, there was less risk and we could save a bit of money and mm-hmm. be in a more relaxed environment which is great yeah 
And that's a beautiful thing to hear when uh, the parties are in agreement and you say, you know what, let's look for something else. Uh, it's also a very brave yeah. thing to do, <laughs> you know, to leave home. Uh, I, I have an obsession with home and what home actually is. And so that sort of feeling like you're, you're uh, committing to a displacement and going somewhere else to find a, a better opportunity is uh, courageous to me. So uh, I got to commend you for that. Was there a weird adjustment period where you felt like, what are we doing here? Or like, how do we make friends? Yeah, I mean, uh, not everyone speaks English here. Like, uh, we both know some French and that's how we get by. But culturally, it's very different. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's in North Africa. It's, uh, it's different than being in uh, North America or like Europe. But... You know, people are, are very welcoming here. Uh, they're very used to foreigners living here and moving here to to work. As long as you're working and you're doing your own thing, mm -hmm. you're fine. But I think it was more of my issues. I really just had to, like, pace myself and find a new groove that worked mm -hmm. for me. And once I figured that out, I was fine. Nice. So let's take a moment to talk about your book, which you have you decided to uh, to put together here. May I ask how this book begins and when did you feel ready to, to write a book about your experiences? Uh, this started really back in 2019. It was an idea I vaguely had long before that, but I didn't have the specifics too much. Um, I don't know if you've heard about it because I know they're quite widely spread around, but uh, have you heard of Shut Up and Write groups? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I went to one for a while because I know I had this idea. I was really wanted for just telling my own story as a disabled person as a form of education. And uh, I put together um, a series of diary entries and uh, medical documents and old report cards from back in the day and talked to a bunch of people, talked to people within the, my own disability community. And I started to go really regularly to that. and commit to a chapter a week mm. um and then about a year later i got a publishing mentor and he made a huge difference in helping me turn it from just a thing in my head to something that makes much more universal sense mm. so in the beginning you you only started with pieces there wasn't a definitive you know uh through line or or, or they, but you were able to work with somebody to kind of start generating a manuscript from scratch? Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, this was before I moved to um, Morocco, this, and I was at a co-working at the time, and it was just a random conversation I happened to have. Mm. And they were like, oh, well, there's someone who's a publisher here. You should talk to them. Wow. It went from there. That's awesome. So how long does the process take to originate this work beginning to end when you started feeling like I have a decent draft or I have something that is cohesive enough to start sending out for publication or consideration? Uh, prior to sending it out for querying and stuff like that, that was a period of around, I would say, a year or so. Mm. And, and once I added in the querying the rejections that was more like two years oh that's wonderful now going back a little bit to this idea that we had discussed about finding your own voice rather than projecting someone else's voice in your writing by the time you started writing this did you feel like you had sort of 
exercised a lot of those demons of perception like you have you have these voices in your head from maybe other communities that you want to represent rather than telling your own story or did you was that even a part of the conflict in in your writing um really it started out more as just telling my own story but as i started to get much more uh involved in advocacy work uh i started to really be talking to people more and be more aware on a global scale of uh, how the same sort of issues were affecting people. Yeah. And that led to more conversations and more interactions, figuring out like not, not just how me as a Canadian woman of my generation, how I, um, how I experienced it, but also I started to talk to people in Hey, I started to talk to people in America, I started to talk to people who had recently immigrated from other countries, things mm-hmm. like that. And that, that really gave me a much broader perspective on how it affects people and how other aspects of people's identity change their experiences. Yeah. That's actually incredible when you realize that the, the way to sharpen your perspective is really to just go out and experience other people's point of view and to, and to learn a little bit more about them. That seems like a very yeah. fruitful time for you. Yeah, yeah, really changed my whole direction, I would argue. Yeah. So as you're as you're completing your manuscript and you go through that, what what kind of feedback were you getting from the publishing queries that you were putting in? Uh at first I really started to lose hope because people the thing is there's a bit of a problematic Thing in the publishing industry right now where people have very specific expectations of what they want certain disability stories to mean. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more, hey, query me, I'm wanting more diverse perspectives, but not a lot of thought into what that involves. So there's, a, for a while, there was a bit of a conflict of, uh, oh, great, you're, you're putting in this disabled story, but I, my expectations of what that should be is completely different. Mm. So I'm just going to say this isn't interesting to a mainstream audience. And I got that quite a few times. Um, oh. And that like, yeah, I had to query 90 different people before there was just two that were interested. Wow. That is, that is actually very revealing. So would you say that it seems like folks are currently looking for a more kind of superficial diversity perhaps that that may just seem like a diverse presentation rather than than something that is a bit deeper yeah and i would argue that that applies to not only disability stories but i'm hearing from people from other sort of things that are under that bubble of diverse that are experiencing a lot of the same thing mm-hmm. I mean, it is kind of a a wake-up call for those to remember that these folks are primarily looking to publish books that will make money in a very general sense, and and, uh, it seems like there's some work to do in that arena. Yeah, there definitely is, and I mean, some may argue, oh, they're trying to make money, yes, but like, of course, there's there's always parents that want to learn more about this. There's always like somebody next door neighbor that wants to learn about this. There's always like a well-intended friend or colleague. And unfortunately, many 
in many cases, the tone cannot always come across well enough all the time. And uh, sometimes it can be too medical-esque or mm. academic Yeah. So it's, it's sort of the big challenge is to reconcile those two things. Like how do we humanize these, these medical, you know, or seemingly more medical or technical bits of information and make them a part of a, an approachable experience, I guess. Without being patronizing too. I mean, that has been in some narratives, that's been a very real problem of uh, making more about making other people feel better about themselves rather than truthfully representing mm. it. Yeah. Did you have that conversation with yourself as you were working on your manuscript? Yeah. You know, I, that was a question I found myself asking my men- mentor a lot. They were, uh, every time they looked at it, I was like, does this seem too much like a one dimensional version of this? And that was very much my anxiety along the way. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, just to diverge for a moment here, um, I wanted to ask you what kind of problems structurally or technically you experienced while writing the manuscript? Like what were some issues that you felt like I'm never going to be able to figure this out or, or some really huge roadblocks that you experienced in, in the process of shaping this, uh, this manuscript? It was easy because a lot of it was coming from my own personal experience. It was easy to get distracted and it was easy to like feel like I'm going back to like, for example, some moment in high school <laughs> or something. And, and I want to talk about like some specific, like trivial event. And then I go, wait, that's nothing to do with like the bigger picture of what this is about. So you, you felt like you, you needed to, did you feel like you, you had to actually write it out to, to trim it, to start cutting later? Or was this something that you were automatically editing out while you were so skipped ahead to, to the most essential uh, things? In earlier drafts, I mean, I started to just show people and just ask them, uh, and that kind of helped in a way. But uh, once I had actual, publisher involved they had a very good um peer review process uh which is honestly is always a gamble anyways you never know if you're going to get anything helpful with a more peer review based process Mm -hmm. but uh it allowed me to get another eye on like what is the most immediately helpful to the audience they're trying to cater to right so tell me about that publishing experience and tell me about those final steps before it's, it sees the light of day. How's that going? Um, yeah, Jessica Kingsley Publishers, honestly, uh, they were great. Uh, they were very patiently working with me for a year solid throughout it. And, and uh, yeah, it came out uh, in, in the fall of, uh, of September. September 2021. It's amazing how time. Oh, yeah. 2022. Sorry, 2022. September 21st, 2022. Um, and uh, so it was a lengthy process. It's, it's amazing because uh, they clearly really know what they're talking about when it comes to diversity-based stuff. And they clearly worked with a lot of non-neurotypical people. Mm. So patiently they went through it. And I was really worried that they, they were going to want to change it some agenda. I was very protective of my own story, mm-hmm. but 
uh, everything that they straight up said, hey, take this out, was something where I went, hey, actually, that really made sense. And um, yeah, I went through a process of that peer reviewer, as I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were also very like careful and conscientious uh, copy editors and proofreaders and things like that along the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now that it's out into the world, what's uh, what's the feeling you're left with? What's the reception been like? And sort of the uh, if there's an epilogue to this book, uh, what is what does it have to say? Uh, well, I am just because it's a niche thing. I went into it not exactly thinking it was going to be some big fairy tale, and uh, really, it's been great to hear from the exact people that I wrote it for. I've heard from parents of kids with a similar diagnosis. I've heard from uh, adult diagnoses. Uh, And really just that people found it insightful. And I've had emails and Instagram messages and things like that. And Mm -hmm. that's very promising to me. And even like Dyspraxia Reddit, they were very good. They were, uh, it was amazing to see them only like a few months after it came out say like hey this is something you should read oh that's awesome stuff like that i see to me that's a marker of success absolutely absolutely if it's getting to the people who need to see it and the representation element of this is so important and and to to hear it be successful is definitely something uh worth celebrating for sure yeah if I may ask, uh, what are some things, though, that moving forward you want to take away from the experience? Like, as you're working on your next project, what is it that you'd like to improve upon in terms of your process or how you went about shopping it out or things like that? Um, Really just more so it's informing my other work. Like, um, I have been getting some other some speaking engagements in that area. and. Mm. Um, it's really given me some insightful perspectives on uh, what other people inside my own bubble want to know about it and yeah. really me expand upon that difficult balance that I think all artists face of uh, like what is immediately relevant to me and what is relevant or broader world. Mm-hmm. I got a couple more questions to be mindful of. You've done an absolute blast and I, uh, I think it's uh it's going to be very informative for a lot of folks uh, who are learning of this condition. But uh, I'm curious what kinds of things you're experiencing in the world right now that are making your art better, that are informing the way you see the world. Uh, it could be, you know, it could be a sport even. It could be a visual art or whatever it is that you're experiencing that is uh, contributing to your perspective. Um, really just small victories in the representation increasing that I'm seeing people in my own community uh, showing up in quite mainstream contexts, like seeing musicians, seeing rugby players, seeing things like that, uh, or even just seeing a neurodivergent co- character show up in a quite mainstream TV show. I was cheering when uh, West had a moment where even though it was a villain, the villain was saying, oh, actually, I'm neurodivergent. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. In the moment you see, wow, I'm being represented right here. But at the same time, it's like, wait, it's the villain. I'll take it. <laughs> is it one of those things where you're like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How about any books that 
you're that you're experiencing right now? Um, Al McNichol has been an amazing small beacon of light. I've been following her work really closely. She's a Scottish author, and she's uh, she writes a lot of YA stuff, and it finds a lot more like magic and supernatural in this particular area. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's been getting a lot of mainstream attention lately through a TV show called uh, A Kind of Spark. And uh, yeah, she has been the most notable example I can think of because uh, she's really like finding the pride and the gifts and all, all this. And it's for a young audience, so it really like pushes the future forward. Mm, absolutely. And such an example. Yeah. So if I may ask, what is the next immediate project on your creative agenda? What is it that you want to get done right away? Yeah, I'm, um, I'm working on a project on exploitation of disabled artists right now um, for a news outlet. And mm-hmm. uh, although in the, more, in the longer term, I'm wanting to um, take uh, a lot of what I did in nonfiction and explore it in a much more fiction-based context. That's awesome. That's going to be, that's going to be wonderful. So lastly, two more questions here. Um, I'm curious what kept you going during the creative process, uh, in, in regards to how you're quantifying success, uh, in in terms of your writing, especially the, the things that are more long-term for folks who are, who are neurodivergent. I'm curious if there are some things that made a difference for you to keep moving, to keep going beyond Mm -hmm. that, um, that sort of voice in your head that tells you you're not going to make it. Communal support more than anything. I mean, uh, I have been part of a lot of advocacy efforts uh, aside from my writing, and it has been just being able to regularly talk to people and work on other projects similar in that area, to be on a board of a charity that is for young people uh, in order to provide peer support for them and to be part of independent advocacy groups. And uh, really what pushed me forward was just being around people who were cheering me on and saying, this is important, this is relevant, keep going. Yeah. And uh, this is sort of a related question, but I get fairly, fairly hokey at the end. For somebody who is just starting out, say somebody who was in your shoes when you were when you were very young and first considering creativity as a neurodivergent person, what would you say to them aside from community to, to keep them going? Um, really just, uh, you need to have a sense of acceptance that maybe your process might be a little different, but you know, that's okay. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise find tools that work for you. Be willing to experiment the things that, help make your work better and uh, really work on finding the language to like figure out from other people around you, how they can support you better. That's wonderful. And with that, I think that's a a beautiful note to end on, but Rosemary, I want to thank you so much for your time. Obviously I'm so grateful to have had the chance to learn about your perspective and your work. And, and of course for, 
I don't mean to sound trite, but for the courage to leave home and to let nothing hold you back, uh, I think that's incredibly exciting. And of course, for your work, because it's very necessary. And, uh, yeah. and I hope that we get as many people out there to, to start reading your work. Yeah. Awesome. Lovely talking to you. <laughs> yeah, it was a, a pleasure. And uh, please stay in touch. Let me know if there's anything else going on with you so we can include it in the episode description, even if it's way down the road. But uh, yeah, I'll be in touch on the internet. Yeah. Thanks again, Rosemary. And I hope you have a wonderful Sunday evening over there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. You take care. Talk soon. Bye. Bye.